Mishmash, a weekly conversation where we try to unjumble an important and sometimes under-the-radar statewide story that affects you. And the state legislature is going to be back in session for its so-called lame duck session very soon. And the question on everybody's mind right now is, will they have some sort of a comprehensive strategy or plan to combat the COVID-19 pandemic? That's right. So we brought in two people who are covering issues related to this for M Live. Julie Mack is the statewide reporter covering COVID for M Live. Julie, welcome to Mishmash. Good morning. And Emily Lawler is lead reporter on M Live's statewide team. Emily, welcome back to Mishmash. Hey, thanks for having me back. <laughs> Emily is now, we believe, our most brought on guest. Very exciting. Uh, So, Emily, we wanted to start with you because you and Julie had a very interesting piece uh, about a week ago now that essentially said that Republicans, they spent all this time, you know, fighting Governor Whitmer and her executive orders. And now it's sort of their turn to step up to the plate. What is their plan? Do they have a plan right now? Um, At this point, no. There are a couple of mid to long range plans that the House has proposed, um, more along the lines of like when metrics are looking better, how we can open things up. The House would like to see that happen regionally, um, which is an element um, that they're pretty passionate about, I think. But in terms of a short range, uh, a plan to address the immediate crisis, which is looking the worst it's ever looked in Michigan, um, and Julie can speak a little bit more to the numbers, but um, no, there there is no plan in the state legislature right now, um, at least from Republican leadership. And, um, you know, I, I thought it was interesting once we wrote about that. Um, you know, I talked with Lee Chatfield a little bit. He seemed open to some things, but Mike Shirky and some other publications, the Senate Majority Leader, um, seemed to indicate that essentially, you know, that wasn't something he was interested in pursuing. So, Julie, uh, you know, tell us where we're at right now and sort of what a lack of a clear statewide strategy means for this surge. Well, I can tell you the health experts are really um, do not want to step into the politics of it. On the other hand, they are increasingly really upset, I think, with with the lack of, of political leadership on this from the Republican side. Um, So where we're at on this in terms of COVID is from a statewide perspective, this is as bad as it's been easily. It probably was, it was worse in the spring in Metro Detroit. So the Metro Detroit region, it was worse in March and April than it was now. But the shutdown in March and April really shut down coronavirus from spreading throughout the state. And I think that Everybody, and I've talked to dozens and dozens of health experts and medical experts over the last eight months, and they uniformly credit that shutdown with with really controlling the virus in the spring. They give a Whitmer high marks for that. But what happened in the fall was that, well, first of all, there was just the weather change. Um, People were doing a lot outdoors, and that helped keep things controlled in the summer. In the fall, you had schools getting back into session. You had um, people going back to work a little more. Um, You had sports starting back up. Um, And then there was also that Supreme Court ruling. Now, that Supreme Court ruling actually didn't, in theory, change much because Whitmer was told she couldn't um, issue these executive orders anymore, but they quickly switched to orders, public health orders, from the uh, Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, which, in theory, maintained the status quo. In reality, what happened, I think, was is that there was a lot of rhetoric about that these rules weren't there anymore and that her powers have been gutted. And 
I think there was a lot more um, people not adhering to those rules. And so compliance went down. Um, that combined with the fact people were moving indoors and there's just more virus in the United States, cases went way up. And we are in bad, bad circumstances right now. There is no getting around it. I look at these numbers every day and compared to where we were two weeks ago, a month ago, they're horrifying. I mean, and you see deaths going up, you know, in a pretty rapid clip, you see hospitalizations going up. So it's not just asymptomatic cases where, oh, people have the virus, but aren't that sick. These, this is a genuine crisis, especially for the healthcare industry. I mean, their hospitals are, well, I'll give you, I actually crunched the numbers just before the show for a story. So 40% of the ICU patients in Michigan right now are coronavirus patients. One illness is 40% of the ICU patients right now. And uh, 25% of all inpatient, adult inpatients in Michigan are coronavirus patients. So that's everything. I mean, you know, the heart attack victims, the people having babies, the people who are in there for other things, 25% of them are coronavirus patients. Let me ask a question, sort of uh, part one for Emily and part two for Julie. Emily, what are, can you talk to us a little bit more about some of the things that the state legislature has done and things that they are at least considering doing in response to COVID? And then Julie, can you talk to us more about, you know, what are healthcare workers saying about that? Are, are these things going to be enough and what would they like to see the legislature do? Yeah, uh, and that's a good point. I don't want to leave people with the impression that the legislature hasn't done anything on COVID because they have. Um, they've done a lot of logistical things, for instance, like remote allowing things like remote public meetings, uh, remote uh, notarizations. Those are some of the things that had sort of been outlined in the governor's executive orders. And then when those disappeared, the, the legislature uh, you know, codified those pretty quickly, I think, and moved pretty quickly and in a bipartisan fashion to to get some of the logistics of, um, you know, enabling people to, to work remotely and things like that. Um, so they've done a lot of things in those buckets. And then they've done some things targeted at specific populations. So the legislature is really, um, again, in a bipartisan way, taking a look at things like schools, things like nursing homes. Um, and so, you know, they have come up with plans uh, for some really specific uh, populations, but there is no statewide plan. I would say that, you know, the big thing, the big thing on Governor Whitmer's wish list is a mask mandate. Um, that does not appear to be gaining any traction. Um, Senate Majority Leader Mike Shirky has been um, pretty opposed to that pretty vocally um, from the beginning. Um, Lee Chatfield, I talked to recently, the House Speaker, and, um, you know, one of the points that he made to me is that he goes to the grocery store and he sees everyone wearing masks. Clearly, it's not just masks right now. And, um, you know, the CDC and others are focused more on that small in-person gathering um, being the, the source of spread. So, uh, you know, I don't think that's getting a lot of traction. And I would say that the number one big idea on the legislature's wish list, and specifically the House Republicans, is more regional control. Um, you know, Representative Ben Frederick has uh, a plan that's sort of this this mid to long range plan that would set targets and let local health departments sort of loosen restrictions based on what's going on in their community um, and not necessarily have everyone uh, deferring up to MDHHS uh, if it doesn't make sense for a particular locale. I think that in terms of the um, healthcare community, uh, the mask mandate is actually number one on their list. Um, and I think that they feel like that 
even though the republic I, I they're just at the wit's end about that from the standpoint of they see this as probably the single most effective tool in their arsenal is that if everybody wore a mask cases would go down and i think that they're truly perplexed at how this became politicized why public leaders just don't get behind this idea you know it's cheap it's effective the imposition on individuals is from their standpoint is very minimal it just seems as reasonable to them as having a speed limit. You know, why, what's, what's the argument against this? That, they're, that the science is struggling for it. This is totally um, doable and, like I said, a minimal infringement. And I think that they also feel like that if the Republicans were more vocal about the value of mass, that would get more people on board that what happened during the election where mass really became politicized and it became Democrats versus Republicans was, was horrible because it just took something that was common sense and turned it into a, a, a political firestorm. So the, the mass mandate is huge for them. They also actually are supportive of the fact that, uh, you know, not having a total shutdown, they've all, a lot of them have said, you know, we've, we've done that once, we don't wanna go down that road again by having targeted shutdowns. And restaurants and bars are problematic. I mean, that is the that is a place that's indoors where people aren't wearing masks. And, you know, that they definitely feel like that that is a, that's, those are, those are a problem. And sports, I, they've also mentioned to me that sports was another problem. Just because people tend to be, you know, you get in very close to each other and you're breathing and you're, exhaling on each other. And a lot of the problems in the schools, they said were not really happening in the classroom. It was in the locker rooms and in, and in the sports field. So sports was another area um, that they definitely behind. I actually, when I've asked healthcare workers about the measures that were taken recently, um, you know, the limits on small gatherings and stuff, they said that all made sense to them, that those, that they thought that MDHS took the data and picked the things that were the problems. One thing that they noticed was that things that they thought would be a problem that weren't a problem, like hair salons being a great example, they left open because it turned out those weren't as problematic as people thought. So I want to talk a little bit about vaccines. Now we have three, at least, vaccines that look like they could be uh, 90% or more effective, uh, at least based on the preliminary trials and uh, what the companies themselves are saying about these trials. Um, we're still a ways off from when those will be widely available. But I'm wondering how that might affect some of these conversations. Uh, and I'll also do sort of a two-parter here. Uh, Emily, we can start with you and then Julie. On the political level, Emily, I'm curious if there's a sense of... We just have to we have to ride out a few more months here, um, you know, and and get through this uh, politically unscathed. Basically, this is sort of me just thinking out loud as someone who's covered the way that <laughs> politicians think in the past. But uh, and then, Julie, how do you think uh, people in the healthcare field are reacting to that news and what it means for sort of their morale at this point? Uh, and Emily, again, we'll start with you. Yeah, I think from the political angle, you're right that there is sort of um you know, it, 
At this point, it doesn't look like uh, the coronavirus crisis will last forever if we can get um, some of these vaccines deployed and effectively out in the population. Um, and so I, I do think that there is a little bit of a sense of uh, the fact that the science is moving um, so fast that maybe the policy won't have to move extremely fast. Um, to, to catch up with that. And, and I would point out too that, you know, when the legislature doesn't act um, and, and doesn't have an immediate plan to address the immediate crisis, um, they're deferring to Michigan Department of Health and Human Services authority. I mean, you know, that's that's been in the law. They, they have a, a public health uh, mandate to do or an authority to do um, the restrictions uh, that they're putting in place, at least um, in theory. I know that there's uh, some legal tests that may go on there. Um, but, you know, in some sense, it, it's a little bit convenient, I think, for the legislature that these unelected officials <laughs> have been the ones making the tough decisions at this point. So I think from a, the standpoint of healthcare workers, um, honestly, much like the politicians, they do see this as a light at the end of the tunnel. They're very enthusiastic about the, the vaccines. But they, from their standpoint, what they see is, is that you could have specifically a big number of deaths between now and then. And from their standpoint, these are preventable deaths. Coronavirus is a preventable disease. If you undertake infection controls, you, this is not, you know, this isn't inevitable that everybody is going to get it or that anybody is going to get it, honestly, if you enact um, strict enough protocols. And so I think that one thing that um, really gnaws at them is why are we, um, why are people dying unnecessarily? And the other thing too is just from a, um, an institutional standpoint, um, to have, to just say, well, we're going to wait, you know, this wave of, big wave of cases is unavoidable and we're just going to go through it. I think their standpoint is, is that, hey, you're not the people working in the hospitals who are having to deal with this and having to work these long hours and have to, um, potentially be exposed to this disease and just the stress of, of dealing with critically ill patients um, who are dying. Uh, I've heard a lot of talk about the, the mental health stress on healthcare workers during this time. And actually, I have a lot of healthcare workers in my, in my extended family. And this is, I mean, there's like PTSD among some sectors of the medical community because of what COVID is doing in the workplace. And so it's easy for people who are not involved in that to say, we will just write it out. It's a lot harder to justify that when you're talking to people who are on those front lines. That's a good point. And actually on a call, Governor Whitmer organized a, a call with a bunch of Midwest governors recently um, to, to talk about sort of the, the gatherings. And it struck me that one of the, the governors made the point that you know, we're all thinking these these frontline workers, but they've been telling him like, you know, we're the frontline lines, but we're the only lines. It's not like there are legions of people waiting to replace them when they get sick or or when they, um, you know, run into some of these these obstacles. So I that that kind of stuck stuck with me that we are very much taxing our our healthcare system as a whole right now. And kind of jumping off of that, I know, Julie, you had kind of mentioned it a little bit before, but I, I think it's a really important point to hit home. What is currently the status of Michigan's hospitals? How close are we to 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 breaking on, on some level? And that's an interesting point. And, you know, people focus on the beds. And actually, as of this morning, I like I said, I was crunching the numbers this morning. And 
Um, the hospitals are about 80% of capacity, which doesn't sound that bad. Um, but what, they po- what the hospitals point out is, is that, first of all, like I said, those are all beds. I mean, psychiatric beds, maternity beds, I mean, those are all beds. Um, you know, it's much, it, let's see, I, as of this morning, I think 86% of ICU beds throughout the state are occupied. The bigger issue, though, is not the beds, it's the staffing. And I mean, you've had, um, and particularly staff that are willing and able to deal with COVID patients. Um, because you have, when you're dealing in an ICU unit, you want people who are used to dealing, you know, nurses, just like many people of many occupations. You can't just take a nurse from one unit and put them in, a, in another and expect them to be up to speed that fast. I mean, there are very specific um, tasks and skill sets, um, you know, depending on what you're doing as a, as a nurse or a doctor. So the people who can treat coronavirus patients, um, the, the, that's a real shortage. And in the spring, it was, even when Michigan was getting slammed, when the Detroit area was getting slammed, this wasn't a national crisis at that point. Um, it was only specific areas getting slammed. They could get, they could bring in people from other parts of the country, other parts of the state to buff up their staffing. Well, now everybody's in the same situation. You know, you can't pull staff from Grand Rapids because Grand Rapids is getting hammered. You know, you can't pull staff from other states because they're getting slammed too. So the staffing is, is a huge, huge issue. And I do think that that is a, you know, so that becomes how close are they to a breaking point? I will tell you that I've been on a couple of calls in the last two weeks in which CEOs have expressed considerable concern about what this is going to mean for their staff. And here's the big thing for people to remember. It is, there's no question at this point, it's going to get better or it's going to get worse before it gets better. And we know that because case numbers go up and then hospitalizations follow. And that rising case number hasn't, I mean, it's continuing to go up. So as long as those case numbers are going up, we know that, you know, in a week or two, there's going to be further increases in, in hospitalizations. To stop that, the crisis in the hospital, you have to stop the pipeline of people getting sick. And that has not turned around yet. So they are steeled for a really bad December, to tell you the truth. I'm just trying not to cry right now. Um, (laughs) Oh, this is just so... Is there anything that you guys think we should add? And I think the one thing, and I'll tell you, I, I will tell you when I talk to... Experts on this, one thing that is so, so frustrating for them, and what really does make them cry, is the feeling that this was avoidable. We did not have to be in this situation. You know, other countries, even though that they have struggled, they have turned it around faster. They have not had the deaths that we've had. They have not had the sustained, prolonged periods of high cases that the United States was. I mean, we... It was just botched in the United States. It just was. And and that's the frustrating thing is, is that we are in a horrible situation we did not have to be in. Julie Mack is statewide reporter covering COVID for MLive. And Emily Lawler is the lead reporter on MLive's statewide team. Thank you both so much for taking the time to join us here on Mishmash today. Thanks for having us. Oh, thanks. Well, that's all for Mishmash this week. I'm Jake Neer. And I'm Shana Roth. Thanks for tuning in. 